It's time for Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2. People G2 is dedicated to helping clients with their people-related decisions by giving them access to the best human capital, due diligence, and background checks available on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and more. So let's start Talent Talk Radio Show with your host, Chris Dyer. Hey, Chris. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining me. Again, my name is Chris Dyer, and I'll be your host for the next hour. For those of you tuning in for the first time, the Talent Talk Radio Show features a wide range of guests who care about talent. On this show, we use talent in two ways. First, as it relates to successful people and uncovering the secrets of really talented people, like both my guests today. And second, we talk about our talent in relations to human resources and how HR leaders find the best candidates today. Hopefully that makes sense. The word talent has two meanings, and today we're really going to talk about the first one, really talented people. And we're going to try to explore it as deeply as we can in our next hour. My guests include CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR executives. And when I'm out at networking events and industry conferences, in fact, I was just in Washington, D.C. this last week for the Inc. 5000 Conference and Awards uh, Gala, which was uh, quite an event. I, I generally had the privilege, and I especially did then, at, to really meet all kinds of inspiring leaders, uh, unique people, entrepreneurs, uh, people really driving business growth and new ideas in our country. So I created this forum to allow you to listen in on our dialogue and learn some practical advice that will hopefully impact your own career in a positive way. Before I get to my guests today, Don Gang- Ganguly, excuse me, uh, and Jim Keen, I want to thank uh, those of you who are tuning in live, but don't forget you can submit your questions via Twitter at PeopleG2 with the hashtag TalentTalk. My producer, Mike, will try to feed me in some of the best questions, and we'll try to work them into the show. Don't forget you can also listen to the show via podcast on iTunes and Android uh, Marketplace. Just go there, subscribe to the show, and you will get every single one as soon as they're ready. With that said, let's get today's show started. Uh, just after my first guest with Don here today from Home Union Services, uh, Jim Keen will be in the second half. He is the CEO of Wellness FX. Uh, so let's get started. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So tell us about yourself and your company, Home Union Services. Well, Home Union is a an online platform for investors to buy fully managed cash-flowing single-family real estate around the country. And what we did is we set, up, set about to solve a problem, which is pretty common. Uh, I'd drive, uh, take a shuttle to the airport, and I'd find somebody driving the shuttle who was a past executive of a company wanting, you know, this two, two or 3000 extra dollars to make up for, uh, you know, the income gap they had. Uh, so we, we kept meeting people in all walks of lives that, that had a need for fixed income, and the market wasn't giving it to them. You know, the stocks go up, they go down, and it just quite doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. Real estate is a ticket uh, where rental income is, is a, an attractive way to do this, but unfortunately, most people don't know how to invest out of their own backyard. So they pick something in their backyard thinking it's safe, but it may not be the best optimal investment. So what a home union does is we scour the country, we certify properties and suppliers, we manage them, and then we bring these properties to our investors to buy, who then get fully rented cash flowing properties that give them a much more reliable uh, monthly income. Nothing's 100% reliable, but it's a lot more than an Enron or a WorldCom or things that <laughs> might happen to you on the way to the stock market. Right, so, right. So that's that's uh, that's Home Union, and uh, you know we're a young company. We're venture funded. 
uh, and we've got uh, you know a lot of momentum and we think we've got something that people need right now. And I, and I think I read that um, you know someone coming in and investing into your service, uh, they can do it into a partial property. Is that correct? Right. So they're not coming in having to do an entire property that you've you've brought to them. Right. So this is the whole Jobs Act and and crowdfunding. So now with as little as five or ten thousand dollars, you can buy into a portfolio of properties. You could have a couple of properties in Chicago, a couple in Atlanta. You can pick you know which portfolios you want to be part of. Put in your five or ten grand, and you start getting a monthly check commensurate with that. If you want to buy the whole house uh, or a bunch of houses, as a lot of investors still do, you can go do that as well and take a Fannie Mae loan and 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 be off to the races doing that. Well, that's a really unique opportunity. So you're sort of the mutual funds of the real estate market here, then. Yeah, it's 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 really an alternate investment class that we are disrupting and legitimizing, right? Mm-hmm. It's been it's a big asset class, is 14 to 20 million dollars. Pick a number. Or 20 million homes, pick a number of homes that are held for investment already by retail investors like you and I. Mm-hmm. But most of them are held sort of locally, suboptimally, people waiting for appreciation, people being landlords and not investors. Mm-hmm. The whole idea is to, you know, make them investors and have them treat this as a, as an investment vehicle, not, not landlording and looking for chicken bones and sinks and taking calls at two in the morning. Right. So. So, you know, given the sort of the model that you've taken on having to go out there and look for these properties to really uh, vet them and to make sure that they're going to be a good investment for your clients, seems like uh, talent is really going to be and who you're hiring and the people within your organization are going to be very, very important to you. I know you've had a lot of experience in this area. Maybe what has been sort of the, the key talent acquisition that you've positioned for your company to be successful? If you look at you know if you look at uh, any marketplace that's online, there are a couple of key areas. One is you know the online experience itself. So you need you know good technology folks that allow people to come in and understand your value proposition, understand how to navigate it, do a lot of self-service because a company can can't really afford to talk to every investor that's mm-hmm. you know putting in five thousand dollars. But at the same time, we want to service that investor in a real personalized way. So that you know talent that helps you build the website, do the traffic build the technology architecture so hopefully it doesn't fail um, when a bunch of people hit on it, as we are seeing with some of the current phenomena around healthcare. You know, that, that's sort of important that it take the load and, and do the right things. The other is uh, you need uh, folks that understand real estate that can go out and uh, build a supply chain of, uh, of properties and, and managers that we provide oversight on. So that's the second aspect of it. And um, the third aspect of it is the pure marketing front. So we've, uh, and compliance, so we've got players in each of these positions. And, and, you know, in a company like ours that's a young company, what you do is you hire talent or you go with talent that you worked with in the past mm-hmm. in key positions, and you always have people that are much more overqualified than their <laughs> position, right? Because the idea is you're, you're thinking of, uh, you know, a big company soul in a little company body. So right. you want all of these people to be there and to be able to scale when this company grows by leaps and bounds and not know the systems and processes and what they have to do. So well, that's one of the key aspects of what you do at an early stage uh, of a company that could be pretty large is you put players in place that can uh, right. scale with it. So so these, these players that are mm-hmm. bringing this expertise, maybe what is it about them? What are some of their attributes that really were attractive to you to bring them into this company this time? Uh, you know, for us, uh, you know, past experience for them, their past history is, is very big in any situation. Uh, the fact that they worked in similar areas, uh, you know, qualification. Most of the folks are engineer MBAs, they're computer scientists. They have 
some of our partners have run companies as CEOs. So we're looking at a very senior team of people that have done something similar or something adjacent to what what we're doing here. Right. Uh, the issue when you have a startup is you don't you don't want people that are learning this. Uh, you know, learn to big build the engine as you fly, so as to speak. They, they mm-hmm. should have built some kind of engine before. As the company gets a little bit bigger, uh, you have the luxury of, you know, hiring those types of folks. As you're in this startup and growth mode, I know you've had a lot of experience in that role, both as a CEO and entrepreneur. So many times it's kind of a learn-as-you-go. I think you gave the example a second ago of building the engine in the air, which right. can, be, can be difficult. You know, and as your understanding of business and leadership has transformed due to those experiences, can you maybe really pinpoint one or two things that helped you shape who you are as a leader today? Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, focus always comes to mind, you know, know your core value prop. I, I remember, you know, years ago when I was selling, uh, you know, we were all organized in verticals for a high-tech software company. And uh, one of the sales guys, you know, he was, uh, I think, in the construction management vertical. And he came into the branch manager and said, you know, um, I, I have this company that's looking for water tower cooler software. It seems to be a big opportunity. And the branch manager tells him, you know, I have another one for you. The, uh, the L.A. school district is looking to buy, you know, 100 school buses. So the sales guy looks at the manager and says, well, we're not in that business. And uh, the manager says, we're not in the water tower cooling software business either. So part, part of the problem is when you're in a certain market, a lot of adjacent opportunities present themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's very easily easy to get sort of distracted in an opportunistic fashion. But I think you have to stay true to your mission if you believe it and then focus on the, your core value props. So that's one of the things I learned early is you can do a lot of little things to keep the lights on and some you should do because the lights need to be turned on. But by and large, you know, you have to be true to your mission, and there's got to be integrity behind who you are as a company and what your value prop is. So I think that's one of my bigger learnings uh, early on in my career that I try to stick to when we view any decision and say, is this something we should do or not? So do you think part of that process and part of the success comes into a level of passion? I mean, you talked about focus, but what, what, where does passion and love what you, loving what you're doing, how, how does that really play into it? That's a great question. I think, uh, you know, this old age, a lot of people live to work, a lot of people work to live. Um, you know, I, I like to use an example. I mean, if you're if you were, uh, an actor or, you're, or you are a uh, cinematographer or, or a director or a painter, you have passion in your work. And uh, you don't you don't measure the hours. I mean, a director doesn't come in and say it's eight o'clock. I punch in. It's five. Let's finish the scene. <laughs> that'd be nice. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> but 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 somehow we take those and you take an artist. We we take those, but we don't actually extend them to business. But the reality is, when you build a business, you are an artist of sorts, and you have to have a passion for what you're building. No matter who you have or whatever position they play in, they have to have the same kind of passion. So without that, if it's an eight to five job and you know you're trying to punch out for a paycheck. You never get that excellence. So people have to be aligned, wanting to see that growth, wanting to see it be built. Uh, you know, it's actually a lot easier when the company's smaller because people can see the tangible impact of what they're doing. I think the challenge is far greater when the company is huge. And now you have people playing in many positions. How do you actually have them in line, uh, you know, to the goals of the overall organization and have them feel good? So it's, uh, but without that passion, I, I don't think you get it all. So and that really comes from within, and sometimes that passion can really be really almost through, uh, what is it, osmosis or mitosis? I forget which one it is, but <laughs> and it really kind of pushed to your down, downstream to everyone else working in the company. Right. So how do you get the most out of each person? 
I think, you know, it begins by trusting them. You know, often what we do is we, we second-guess our, our, our employees. We give them too much direction. And after a while, it's like any situation. They don't want to do anything till they run everything by you. So you just, you know, killed off the passion. I uh, I was, uh, you know, uh, listening to the show where this lady that created Spanx, uh, which is, I don't know, half a billion dollar industry, mm-hmm. uh, all by herself, uh, was talking about the fact that her parents who were, I think, attorneys, would tell her uh, every day and, and, her, and her siblings, what mistakes did you make today? And uh, if you didn't make any mistakes, then you didn't really push the envelope. And I think that's a really important point in a business, is that employees should feel, and I know it's, this is trite, mother and apple pie, but employees should feel okay about stepping out and making some mistakes. Employees should feel okay by, you know, throwing the ball down the field when, you know, the receiver is not, is kind of partially covered. Uh, and I think that's where it starts because that's where the confidence comes in and that's where you get, you know, the true, cre- true creativity out of those employees as opposed to you telling them, you know, here are the five things to do and better get it done by day after tomorrow and here's how I want you to do them. I mean, then you're putting a lot more onus on yourself uh, and you're not getting the best out of your employee. So that culture of creativity comes from a culture of, you know, delegation. Uh, mm-hmm. but we usually refer to that as autonomy. Right, yeah. so they're given that freedom to do their job within their pay grade. You're not asking right. them to do something they don't know how to do. Right, they're not qualified to do. Um, but to give them those options, and of course, if they need help, they can get the help. They can find help if it's. But I think you you, you touched on an important point that we brought up on this show before, and other guests have too. The best organizations allow people to make those mistakes, allow them the freedom to go out there and find out how to do it, and then in turn helps them learn more, become a better employee. And then they're not, like you said, running into your office, you know, five times a day asking for either your approval or your help or your direction. And some leaders actually like that. They like the fact that you know, they've right. got their finger in all those pies and nobody does it better than them. And I think it's a mistake. Well, I, and that's uh, there's a good book uh, called Good to Great. They talk about becoming yeah. the level five leader, and and they really say a lot of a lot of organizations have good leaders, but they'll never get up to that top level five because really it's one genius right. and a bunch of helpers. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And they can never really get to become a great company. And, and, you know, in those cases, the genius syndrome, if you can call it that, does attract helpers because truly creative people don't don't live in that system very long because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, either they don't have the freedom or their ideas are always shot down for another idea. And, and that's, that's the other thing uh, I think organizationally we try and do is I tell employees when they come in and saying, look, this is not a political organization. The best idea wins. So... Shame on you if you don't come up with an idea, but come up with the idea. And if yours is the best one, then we'll go with it. Right. But uh, if you don't have one or if it's not a good enough one, then somebody else's will win. But that's the only thing. It's a meritocracy of work and ideas, not some other weird hierarchy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we talked, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, that freedom to make mistakes. And I think we all have to, to do that. And there's also that, that fear that maybe what you're not good at can really trip you up. So, in your roles and in places where you've worked over time and companies that you've driven forward, has there been a, maybe something that you weren't good at that you had really had to work on to really make that a part of the equation that made you successful? Yeah, you know, for me personally, uh, I found over the years that I'm I'm good at selling an idea. You know, I'm somewhat articulate and I'm out there and I get an idea, I get passionately behind it. And And sometimes there are people, sometimes the idea is not the greatest one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I'm pushing. Uh, many times it may not be. Uh, and sometimes there are people in the room that actually have a better idea or a better direction to go in, but they get overpowered because, you know, I'm on some soapbox 
pushing, you know, this way to go. And after, you know, a few times of that, I realized that I got to step back uh, and really listen to some of the people that may be quiet and not articulating what they think, but there may be a pony or a gem in, in what they're saying. So a big piece of my learning, I think, is to, you know, sort of silence yourself, uh, step back and listen. And sometimes, even if you think you have uh, an idea that is more effective or I don't want to use the word better, but maybe more aligned with what the situation requires, you need to have the patience to hear everybody else out. You can't compress time by saying, I know what you're 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 saying. Yeah. this is the right answer. Because that process is a catharsis, that process of people articulating what they think is the best answer uh, is also helping them grow and helping them feel more comfortable. And maybe that wasn't the best answer that day, but tomorrow it will be. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think part of a leader is to, you know, at least be patient and facilitate that rather than always look to compress time. So I think that's one of my uh, biggest learnings is having climbed the wrong tree fast, you know, <laughs> push the bad idea <laughs> in a very good manner. Right. So uh, I've learned to work back from that, and it's well, helped And if me. you can articulate an idea well and speak well, and that becomes even a bigger problem, yeah, right? Exactly. And <laughs> sometimes it's a, it's a bigger disadvantage because you're going to push the wrong idea faster. So one of our favorite mm -hmm. uh, questions to ask on this show of our guests is, what are, what are you reading right now? You know, it's interesting. I'm uh, I'm reading a very old book by an Indian monk, very famous Indian monk called Vivekananda. Uh, he uh, J.D. Salinger followed him. Uh, it's a it's a book on called Raja Yoga. It's on yoga and meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I was uh, you know born in India, brought up there. So a lot lot in the East, and yoga is now a big phenomena here in the West. But what people don't realize, a lot of what happens there is really about controlling the mind and and and, and silencing the mind in controlling your senses. So this book talks a lot about, in a very prescriptive way, not, you know, some go under a tree and contemplate uh, your navel, but <laughs> in a very prescriptive way, how you can actually silence your mind, how you can let it not float into areas that is not productive and keep it focused. And believe it or not, if you look at business, a big piece of when you create something good is when your mind is in that single-pointed focus to the exclusion of everything else. Mm -hmm. So uh, a technique of how do you exclude everything else and concentrate on one thing is is meditation, is yoga in a way of, of uh, you know, it's it's like uh, the example I like to use is when, you, when you've got one second left in, in a basketball game and you've got those two free throws to make, uh, what's the difference between Kobe Bryant and a rookie? The rookie could have a 90% free throw shooting rate. But the rookie is nervous about the outcome of the game if he doesn't make the free throw. Whereas Kobe Bryant's only in the free throw. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a matter of the mind being silent, not thinking about the outcome of the game, but only focusing on the free throw. So, you know, th this is what a book like this does, is focus you inward, focuses you inward and, and, and helps you be, you know, more focused on whatever else you're doing externally, mm -hmm. not getting distracted. Well, and those kinds of, of things that we're doing really can help you uh, push out your own creativity, your own problem solving, your own maybe the best of you, right? And I think as CEOs or as entrepreneurs, those are things that we're uniquely focused on on a regular basis. Right. I think we're uh, introspective sometimes to the point of, uh, of our own fault, right? But that's not always the case for the other people in the organization. So within a creative process, and I know you mentioned allowing people the that time to get their ideas out, to not... Uh, 
you know, kind of compressed for time, as you as you said. But maybe you could talk about a little bit deeper, a little further, how you get the most out of people in those creative processes or in a brainstorming session to really come up with their best ideas. One of the things I think we should step back a second and say, you do need a good training program uh, to get people into the job because people can't be creative if they're half-baked in their knowledge of the job. So they have to be equipped. I mean, no matter where they come from, you, you need an infrastructure of training to get them to a point where they're fully versed with all aspects of that job. But once you uh, – the brainstorming, I think, is, is, a, is a no judgment, no repercussion type of a uh, session. No idea is too stupid. You hear that all the time. But at the same time, uh, it's not, you know, free form, boundless, bouncing off the walls with stuff that's not relevant. So the key to brainstorming, I think, is you, you rein in within a box of what it is that you're trying to solve. And, you know, a lot of us are, you know, are engineers, and I never enjoyed engineering. But one of the things engineering does, helps you is you look at any, any problem and you, you see a set of alternatives. I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do that. So you start with that, then you say, okay, which of those make sense and which of those don't? And then of the ones that make sense, which 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 is number one, which is number two, which is number three? So there is, there's a real scientific way of breaking down that process. So when you're brainstorming, in a way you're creative, it's an open canvas, everybody has a piece of, you know, has a paint and a brush and they're putting their own colors in it. But it has to be within the framework of, you know, a solution set. And I, I think the leader has to drive that. Mm-hmm. saying, you know, when stuff's off, saying, hey, that's a good idea, but not for this particular problem. Or that's a great idea, but it doesn't really help us in the next 90 days, which is what we're trying to solve. That's a great idea, but is it going to cost too much money that we don't have? You know what I mean? So I, I think good brainstorming is uh, is letting people be fearless, mm-hmm. but letting them understand that uh, there are time and, and, and resource and relevance boundaries within which they have to work. And, and I think uh, all good brainstorming needs a good facilitator. I mean, you need somebody that's doing this. If yeah. everyone in the room is bouncing off walls, right. you don't get there. So. Right. Yeah, it's difficult if everyone is a part of the process and no, no one's directing it. Right. Now, one thing we've tried to do is we will try to get everything up on the board, anything that anyone wants to throw out there for an idea. And usually what ends up happening is by the time everything gets up on the board, People have already started to self, you know, to, to take those things about, well, I see now that that doesn't work. Or that, before, if I'm facilitating, the facilitator has ever even said, no, this isn't a good idea. So I can kind of remove myself in those instances from even having to be the one to tell them, no, they start doing it themselves. Right. You know, oh, geez, these other four ideas are fantastic. I want to, let's go with those and just kick mine out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and then as a facilitator to be able to figure out, well, is that, are they right or well, they not well, right? Well, you know, that's the other aspect of it. You, you make a good point where, you know, sometimes you ride your own idea too hard. You know, somebody in the room might. And I, I think you've got to get people to agree that, look, this is not your last chance at glory. I mean, so <laughs> uh, let the best idea win. And a lot of how I you are viewed is how good you are as a team, team player picking the best idea, especially mm-hmm. when it's not your own. Uh, and, and that's where I think you lead by example, where you might have an idea, and you throw it out and somebody else has an idea and you immediately point to it saying that's a better idea than mine. Mm-hmm. And so people are comfortable saying, okay, if he does that, then, you know, we can do that as well. Right, right. Yeah. And, yeah it adds an, another, another element to your company and people be more comfortable, more open. Right. Uh, and hopefully that they're doing a lot more creativity and brainstorming all day long, not right. just when you show up into a conference room, right, with right. a facilitator. 
So we're getting here to, uh, close to the end. I just have a few more questions for you. Uh, it has uh, been great so far. You've been a great guest. But uh, one of the things I did want to ask you, and it's a question we ask uh, occasionally of our guests when we have the time. I'm not sure if you've read the book Outliers by uh, Malcolm Godwell. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he certainly brings up a very interesting point, something that we seem to get a very distinct difference, different answers every time we ask it. But do you think that his premise that if you do something... With 10,000 hours of practice, that you're going to hit this magic uh, level of expertise. Do you think that's possible across the board, or is it maybe more restricted to what different things? I think, you know, I would sort of tend to agree with the broad statement of 10,000 hours. However, um, you know, it's it's not like, you know, you're the Beatles and you've practiced for rock and roll for 10,000 hours before you end up in Liverpool in that little bar and you cross mm-hmm. over into glory. There are adjacent areas, right? If you've been in the field of, let's say, communications, you could take a left turn and become a director of an ad film. You could be uh, a talent talk show host. You could uh, you could go out and be something else in a related field. So I think that 10,000 hours can be in a broad envelope of a category. And, and, and if you're going to work within that category, it springboards you. So if you say... Well, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm doing this particular thing in communications that I have not spent ten thousand hours on, but you get wildly successful in it. It's not necessary that you've spent it on that, but you've spent it under some platform of communications. Similarly, when you look at us, you know, Home Union is a good example, right? We are we've done a lot of work in in online websites. We've done a lot of work in in real estate development. So, what we are doing now has never been done before. Mm-hmm. So how do I spend 10,000 hours doing an online site that brings uh, alternate investment properties for retail investors, the grandmother in Tennessee, the retiree in San Diego? I mean, it's not been done in this fashion. Mm-hmm. But everything else we've done prepares us for this intersection. So I agree with that, but you have to sort of creatively say, you know, if I've spent 10,000 hours doing this, maybe I've spent 4,000 doing that, 3,000 doing this, and 3,000 <laughs> doing this, and add them all together. Right. It's in 10,000, which prepares me for this amalgamation or synthesis of those activities. So that's my sort of And I always think one of the distinctions here is that to be an expert in something is one thing. To be really good at it is another. Yeah. Or, I mean, use the Beatles as an example. I mean... I play guitar. I think I've probably played guitar for 10,000 hours, but I am not the Beatles, and I'm not Paul or any of the other Beatles, and I don't ever will. I won't ever will be. They have a special talent. and a They had something there that most people will never will experience, but I know how to do chords, and I know how some music theory, and I know how to strum the guitar. I certainly have some expertise there, but I think that's the distinction between expertise and real superstar, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think the premise is that uh, that you have that, you know, spring well of talent already, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. But not everybody harnesses the talent. So, you know, and, and a lot of us, uh, you know, don't have that level of talent, but we, you know, we don't go to the moon, but we hit the top of the tree because <laughs> we worked hard enough to get there. Right. So I, I think there's a, there's a definition of success I once heard, which is, uh, you know, where preparation meets opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of us have the preparation. We never get the opportunity for the big leagues. Uh, some of us have the preparation and the opportunity, but we may not have that inner spark and the genius that we talked about with the Beatles or yeah. anybody of that category. And so when all of those aligns and there's a confluence, that's when, you know, the 10,000 hours, the talent, and the opportunity all get together and you, you've got greatness, you know. Yeah. Um, 
Well, Don, you've been a wonderful guest. Uh, the final question we have for you today is how can people reach out to you or your company if they're interested in learning more? Uh, very simple. My email is don at homeunion.com. The company's URL is www.homeunion.com. Uh, I can be reached at 949-385-5358. Either one of those work. Uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions people have. Wonderful. Don, thank you so much for being a guest today on the Talent Talk radio show. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you. Up next, Jim Keem will be on the show after this quick commercial break. Imagine what it would feel like to lose everything. Your job, your home, your family, your dignity. This has happened to thousands of the men, women, veterans, and young adults we serve at Working Wardrobes. What do we do to help? We provide career development services, life skills workshops, job skills training. We provide the perfect interview outfit, and we get clients placed in jobs. Call Working Wardrobes, 714-210-2460. Donate, volunteer, invest, hire. When it comes to pioneers in their respective industries, we all know the Apples, Starbucks, and Trader Joe's of the world. In the realm of recruiting, Decision Toolbox is the industry's best-kept secret. With 90% of their business from referrals and repeat customers, for over 20 years, Decision Toolbox's U.S.-based team of recruiters, sourcers, professional writers, quality personnel, and tech support has perfected a Six Sigma approach to talent management. No matter the size of the project, Decision Toolbox delivers incredible results. A cost per hire less than half of what contingency firms charge. With the winning candidate presented in an average of 14 days. All with a 12-month candidate warranty. With results like that, Decision Toolbox won't be a secret for long. Visit us at www.dtoolbox.com for more information. Talent Talk Radio Show is brought to you by People G2, as we said at the beginning, a company dedicated to helping you with your people-related decisions. They do that by providing access to the best human capital due diligence and background checks on prospective candidates, business partners, tenants, and much more. They've been recently named one of the best places to work in Orange County, as well as one of the fastest-growing private companies by the Orange County Business Journal. And they've also been recognized recently in the Inc. 5000 list of fastest-growing privately owned companies nationwide so to learn more it's simple just go to people g2 that's www.peopleg2.com or you can follow them on facebook and their twitter handle is of course at people g2 lots of ways to find out more about people g2 or you can tune in each and every week to talent talk radio with your host chris dyer back to chris and his next guest Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Just a quick reminder, you can subscribe to the podcast of this show and listen to past shows as well by visiting octalkradio.net and clicking on the Shows tab and, of course, clicking on Talent Talk. In the short time we've existed, we've already amassed a huge following on iTunes and we're now moving into the Android uh, podcast market as well, so we thank you. My next guest is Jim Keene. Don't forget to tweet your questions live right now for him uh, by sending them to at peopleg2, hashtag talent talk. Without further ado, Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you doing today? Doing well. So tell us about yourself, uh, 
maybe what you did before uh, you started this company and uh, anything else you'd like to share and, of course, uh, what your company, Wellness FX, does. Sure. So I would say kind of my modern-day history started in 1995, uh, about probably three years after I gotten out of business school. I went to Dartmouth uh, Business School. And I had done a series of startups because I was really interested in, in what was starting to become a, a big growing part of our economy, which is these young technology startups, and I was focused on uh, medical devices and medical media. And I saw my first browser in 95 when Netscape went public, and I immediately realized if you took that browser and pasted it over a, a number of databases, uh, medical databases, that it would basically, I guess, contribute to the rise of a consumerization of health. You could make it searchable. You could uh, put community terms in there for people to link together, say, a breast cancer patient with another one. And that's how I started my first uh, Internet company in 95, which was Safety and Health Network. And that actually became, in 1999, we merged with WebMD and became WebMD's foundation for their consumer business. And a lot of the technologies we developed, they still use there today. Uh, but we had done 20 disease groups by then uh, and over half a million users. Now, that's far dwarfed by where it is today. I, I still have some people that used to work for me over there, and, and they probably average about 25 million unique per month. So it's become a big business. And then after I sold that, I was their first executive vice president consumer. And ever since, I've been involved in some form of uh, digitization or easier more consumer-friendly versions of health and wellness delivery of services. So it sounds like much of your career you've spent in health, wellness, technology-type uh, ventures. Can you maybe uh, talk a little bit about what sets Wellness FX apart in this industry? Sure. So I, I kind of see two phases that happen in digital health. The first phase, it was kind of like plowing a, a really an unplowed field, uh, preparing the ground. And that was Health 1.0 is what they now decided to call it. And that was the basic things like search engines and communities and things like that all organized around health. So that's really then you had to have that in place where consumers were comfortable accessing just basic things like that online. And then in about 2008 and nine, quite a few new technologies as far as being able to build big cloud-based uh, technical platforms, content delivery, video got going, you start having mobile come up, the whole Apple revolution. And that's really created what they're now calling Health 2.0. And so Wellness Effects, in 2009, I was really excited by this rise of Health 2.0 and the various tech uh, tools and features that I could see because they solved a lot of problems that I'd always uh, been contemplating in Health 1.0. And... I started looking around for a big, clumsy market that had uh, a lot of various entries for consumers, and yet if you consumerized it, it would drop the cost of, of preventative health, it would resonate with consumers, and it would focus us more on prevention. So it had a little bit of a social good aspect to it. So wellness effect, I, I don't know, well, just to back up a bit, I'm, I'm not sure anybody's aware of this, uh, but it is illegal for consumers to directly go in and buy a diagnostic test in every state in the United States. So it's considered right up there with a prescription drug. So you have to, as a consumer, go track down a doctor to uh, and persuade him or her to order a script for you 
And then once you have that script, then you can uh, go find a, a place to get tested, and then uh, they'll email or they'll mail you the results. And so that's kind of how it works right now. So it's huge barriers to entry. So we developed a system that we integrated with the three major lab systems in the United States, and we went state by state beginning in 2010 and incorporated all the rules and regulations around consumers buying digital medical services related to diagnostics in each state. And they're completely different. It's almost like going to 50 different countries. So we did that, and concurrent with that, we also added in state-by-state telehealth so that uh, you could get your results electronically in in award-winning digital feedback that is incredibly consumer-friendly, not your typical health plan, and then safely extend the healthcare data security privileges that you have as a consumer in our system to any team member of your choosing that was a health practitioner. So that's why we did both diagnostics and uh, telehealth on a state-by-state basis. So what might help here, I think, and in those people that are listening to understand, is maybe I would, I'll share my story and how I really got exposed to Wellness FX. And I think uh, my story might be very similar to a lot of the people that you've had come in. And you can tell me if I'm wrong there, but uh, I certainly follow a lot of what Tim Ferriss does. His his latest book, The Four Hour Body. Certainly not the first time he's talked about you guys, but that was the when he kind of did it the most heavily, or at least when I paid attention. And so I went uh, into your site and got a blood test and had the diagnostic uh, report come back and talk to someone. Uh, uh, I think you made lots of different choices who you could talk to, but I think I spoke to someone who was kind of a, an expert in uh, wellness with with uh, diet. I'm more of a dietitian type person. And got a lot of great information about the fact that I was really unhealthy. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I really needed to make some changes, which I began doing. And a few more times had uh, those tests done to see what progress or lack of progress I was making. And I, of course, then I turned that around. I was so excited about it. I gave that as kind of a uh, our holiday gift to our to my uh my staff. I think they might have preferred a check, but instead I gave them uh you know this uh access to go in and run a test for themselves and to see where they were at and uh, I'd give them a copy of the book as well, uh, Tim's book. But I think it's that kind of immediate I think very similar consumer-based thing that we're seeing now anyway, that people want to go do this for themselves, they want to get educated themselves, and they don't want the institutional barriers there to slow them down. Because I know if I went to my doctor to do this, it would have taken, like, forever. And I'm not sure I would have had the same useful conversation with him as I would, as I did with the dietitian. It really opened up a lot. And, and not to mention, your interface is just really cool. The way that you can see everything, you know, like where your cholesterol's at and what vitamins you're deficient in. And so would that sum up one of the main ways in which people are finding you and you're growing, yeah. or are there other ways in there as well? So, so from a um, – you, you just gave a great description of how the how we chart out consumer – what we call the consumer progression through our service. And yet what's interesting is all along the way, you inadvertently were able to uh, smoothly pass through all the myriad of uh, state and federal regulations that would normally prevent you as a consumer from accessing this. Um, and the way it happens is from the first, when you created an account with us, you entered a zip code. So uh, are you, you're a California resident, right? Correct. So you entered your California zip code. That immediately alerted us to make sure that we went out and did a current check against all California's privacy security laws as well as any federal standards that they interacted with. 
uh, for both diagnostics. And then when you also uh, had a, a telehealth consult put in there, we also checked to make sure who was allowed to talk to you over your data based on your jurisdiction. And you didn't have to figure that out. All that happened mm-hmm. is you go, wow, I created an account, uh, entered my zip code, and then um, we sent the zip code and the authorization to uh, LabCorp. And LabCorp then, and based on that, we then automatically in the background, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you're assigned both a ordering doctor as well as releasing doctor. And in the background, what happens is you're, you go in, print out your rec, walk in, LabCorp immediately recognizes your code, you get drawn, your results get released. But interestingly, before your results get released, we have a doctor who has to look at this, and there's about 10 or 12 different biomarkers if you're hitting what's called a critical value. Then our medical director would get a message to give you a call and not release the data because we'd have to get you to a hospital right away. So we become a really okay. good early warning system. So all that went on in the background when it on the surface just seems like a super simple consumer uh, process, uh, which it's never been before. So we're super proud of that. We have incredibly high quality ratings from uh, all of our customers. But if you think about it, our, our real goal is to give you the same high-quality retail experience that you would get at a Starbucks or if you went into any of the fine retail brands that have really focused on making consumers happy. And, and the, a really important point here is that prior to this, healthcare services haven't really cared about what consumers think. They either design a service like this around the needs of a, a benefits administrator or a uh, insurance company executive and the consumer is the last person they think of and then they wonder why why isn't anybody using their application right yeah i mean i found the whole process to be very simple very clean interface to be very user-friendly and of course having that opportunity to not only speak to someone but to choose the type of person that i wanted to speak to i can't remember all the different types but there were people from all different yeah, consumer health doctors we have regular doctors. We have cardiology-oriented doctors right. because a lot of people have history of heart disease. We have clinical nutritionists, compounding pharmacists, naturopaths, if that's what you want. If you're more sporty, you can get a sports medicine doctor. You mm-hmm. can get a sports medicine nutritionist. So we really feel that every consumer has the right to organize their particular mix of talents for their team of people that they want looking at their data. Yeah, and I found the experience to be uh, to be great. And I, I tend to be quite picky owning a company and, and one that has very high customer service standards and, and accolades that, uh, you know, if things don't really match up, I tend to get frustrated. And I, I found it to be, to be really, really good. And that, that's probably why I know you recently won an award. It was mm-hmm. for the uh, Consumer Health uh, 2.0, rec- recognized as an award-winning company by them. Can you maybe identify one or two of the things that you think were your biggest keys of success in being recognized with such an honor? Well, first of all, are you familiar with Net Promoter Score? A little bit, but why don't you go ahead and explain it in case the listeners are Sure. So I, we live and breathe by Net Promoter Score, and it, it was developed about 10 years ago. It's a, just a complete genius way of uh, assessing how people feel about your product and service is at the end of consumption of a particular experience or product, you ask, this question you say based on your experience how likely are you to recommend this product or service to a close friend or family member so if you translate that would you put your mother in this product and it's rated on a scale of one to seven if you give it a six and seven you're considered a net promoter a five is considered neutral 
and then one to four is considered a net detractor. And what you do is you take your total promoters and subtract your uh, total detractors, and that gives you uh, a net promoter score. So airlines, if you take that, typically are a net promoter of uh, positive five, which means that slightly more people promote are satisfied with their service experience with airlines than uh, aren't. Healthcare is typically a negative five. Uh, <laughs> Kaiser is considered the best of all healthcare, large healthcare companies. They're at a plus 28. And we routinely had a net promoter score of over 70. And it's about the highest one we've ever heard of in any industry. And we've measured since we launched, and that's been over 11,000 people. So we really feel like we're, first and foremost, Every time we have a quality experience issue, we immediately uh, track it down. We respond uh, immediately to feedback, and we'll uh, go and, and analyze it almost like an airplane crash and say, okay, is this happening a lot? Can we prevent this again? And are there tools that we can offer to do this? Just to give you a, a more deep dive, nuts and bolts view of how seriously we take this, when we launched our LabCorp integration nationwide, uh, we were instantly integrated with 2,000 lab core draw sites nationally. And we weren't sure if our codes would propagate to lab core to where the technicians would treat our customers well. So we actually called up friends in the States and said, hey, awesome deal. Just walk into this lab core with this uh, requisition form and report back to us how well you're treated. Do they recognize your order? All that. Turned out about a quarter of the lab cores didn't even know about us, and their computer system hadn't propagated uh, our code there. So we would have had a bunch of people walk in and not be able to, uh, to you know, use their scripts, and that would have caused a lot of distress. Mm -hmm. So we actually then went back and re-engineered LabCorp's lab system uh, in certain ways so that it functioned better at our system, and then ran it again and had almost zero defects on that. So we take quality and net promoter score. We look at it every single day. There's a big leaderboard in our company. And we're completely focused on that. The second thing is, is that, uh, we are constantly, um, testing how people interact with data during consults. And so we have a huge, we feel like we're probably the world's experts right now on, uh, presenting data in trends, colors, and different graphical means. And then sometimes they don't work well and sometimes they do. And we're constantly keeping the successful ones and showing out the bad ones. We, really feel like our job is to communicate at a glance your information to you, and that's why we won that interface award. So uh, we might be able to quantify this in in such a way that you guys are doing something that's pretty cool and awesome, and you're always testing to make sure that it really is cool and awesome. Yeah, and <laughs> so it, it even comes to um, we're what's known as a, an agile company. We base ourselves on agile development premises. So, for example, if you... If you just hit our site, you may or may not see the same thing as the next guy because we rotate different pages on a statistically randomized basis. Mm -hmm. Sort and, of an A-B testing, but maybe a little bit a little bit more complex. Yeah, we do A-B testing. We do calls to action with different types of, of emotional characters, uh, different personas, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And we're uh, probably every couple of weeks we'll rotate out the ones who don't uh, have as high a statistical percentage. So our goal is, is to make it more understandable every month and remove more and more barriers from youth, basically consumer services. The other thing we did is we dramatically changed the pricing structure of the industry. So there's a, a marker called APOB, 
you know, so your your LDL cholesterol is composed of ten. Your bad cholesterol is composed of about ten subtractions. And so, if you were to blow that apart and count all the fractions, there's one that's the sticky part of your cholesterol, the really bad part of bad cholesterol, called ApoB. And this used to be only measured if you're, say, the chief executive officer of Exxon and paid twenty thousand dollars to go to uh, Mayo Clinic for a two-day workup. Mm-hmm. But it was beyond most normal people, and that single marker by itself was literally hundreds of dollars. We negotiated a national contract, even though we're a little company, that we got both from LabCorp and Quest. Half of Medicare negotiated rate with the federal government. So we're actually cheaper than most insurance companies. And in fact, most of our packages, especially beyond the just basic markers, if you tried to buy them, they'd be three to four times on the open market or, or walk-up rate with a doctor that you could get through us. So the other thing we're really trying to do as a change agent is every time we drive more volume, we go back and negotiate more discounts, and we pass most of that on to the consumer. Wow, that's great. So, you know, being in a uh, really in that business startup mode still, I know you're having tremendous growth. It sounds like you guys are really moving in a, in a quick way, but I think that talent acquisition... And bringing the right people into your company has got to be something that's on your mind as you move forward. Maybe you could kind of tell me what was one of the initial key hires that you made that really helped you in your company and go forward. So what happened with us is it was myself and Brent Vaughn. And Brent comes from the diagnostic side of the biopharmaceutical industry. So we're covered both on regulatory as well as diagnostics and in life sciences. And then I understood how to do large-scale uh, social community, uh, social health communities online. The thing we were lacking, actually, and we had to hire an outsource technology group to architect our product first, was a technical lead. So I think the biggest thing that probably could have shortened our time to market was having um, a tech team that wasn't contractors almost right away. And I'd say a good VP of engineering probably would have moved us up at least six to nine months. Um, everybody else, we haven't had a problem recruiting. And what's interesting about our company, I've never had a company like this, is that a, a lot of people, uh, I can almost predict what they're going to say during an interview. They'll come in, I'll say, why do you want to work here? They go, you know, I'm tired of working for digital widget companies that mean nothing or are doing something that isn't meaningful. And I think you guys are changing the way health is for the world. And so I really want to work here. So we, at any given time, have uh, three or four people for every single position that are awesome candidates, and sometimes we'll open a position up. We'll get uh, hundreds of people applying for it. So we're in a pretty good spot there for, for most technical scientific talent as well as uh, design. I would say that at the point we start expanding our staff, which we'll probably do in the next six months, we're always on the lookout for really top quality uh, Ruby on Rails engineers, mm-hmm. but all the other positions, we've never had a problem finding uh, people who have called us and said, well, whenever you hire again, please keep me in mind. Well, one of the f- questions that we love to ask our guests on the show uh, that our listeners really seem to react to is this one. Well, what are you reading right now? Oh, well, I'm a voracious reader. And so I'm constantly, uh, I have a couple different books going at any given time. Let's see. So the first one I'd say is I love ancient history. So I'm reading The Legions of Rome, which is kind of a, a lesser-known book, but it's really it's a hardback, and it's the definitive history of 
every Roman legion uh, back in the Roman Empire. And that, you know, I just happen to like that. I'm also reading a uh, book on the English Civil Wars in the 1600s. And then I'm reading a um, kind of a space opera $1 download from Kindle that <laughs> is kind of filled with mindless, uh, you know, space warfare from an, <laughs> like an almost a naval perspective. And then I'm reviewing one book right now by uh, a guy named Ben Massault, which I think is an awesome book. It's called Mad Skills. And it's a catalog of all the different physical movements that you can do for yourself to uh, improve your flexibility and athleticism. Wow. Quite quite a bit. I think this, the, the, the space opera was the most interesting one there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, 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 it's my brain candy book when I can't take business anymore. Right, right. <laughs> You know, Jim, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. You, you've done a, a remarkable job, and I think uh, really, as you can tell, we, we really love what your company's doing, and we've enjoyed uh, being able to use it. Um, I say we, myself, and my, my staff has definitely de- gone in there and uh, been able to find out some great information, and I hope our listeners will, will take a look at what you guys are doing with uh, Wellness FX. The last question I have for you is uh, if people are interested in reaching out, finding out more about you or or using your services, what's the best way to do that? Sure. So our website is www.wellnessfx.com. And you can also email me at jk at wellnessfx.com. Wonderful. Jim, thank you so much for being our guest today. I hope uh, you'll consider coming back again and giving us an update on how you're doing. Have me on any time, and congrats on the launch of a great media channel. All right. Thank you very much. That's about all the time we have for today. Thank you again to my special guests, uh, Don Gengeli and Jim Keene of Wellness FX. Tune in next week the same time, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, for Talent Talk brought to you by People G2. To hear more, we have some very special guests next week, Steve Nunez of Penske Motor Group and also Ayindi Alioki. I think I've completely murdered that, but um, I know him well. I just cannot say his name well. He's the CEO of Hitch Radio and he's also been on Millionaire Matchmaker a couple times. So both intriguing guests next week. Until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, sponsored by People G2, right here on OCTalkRadio.net.